Cobra helicopters are the locusts and so on, and the Antichrist is about to reveal himself through the European Union and the reborn Roman Empire. We all are basing our view on the millennium on one verse of scripture from Revelation chapter 20, verse four. What did it mean to them then and there? How does that apply to me here and now? Dr. Scott Stripling is going to tell us about the book of Revelation, clarify some things for us, and hopefully this will start you down the path where you can start to interpret a lot of that biblical meaning for yourself and just find more enrichment from the Bible and maybe, maybe more meaning and purpose for you to live your Christian life today. I think that's probably the ultimate goal, right, Dr. Scott? Yeah, absolutely. And so I'll, I'll take off my archaeologist hat and put on my theologian hat. All but, right. <laughs> you know, they're, they're sort of split down the middle because the same thing we do in archaeology, we're trying to discover original intent. And that's what we want to do textually as well. So, you know, what did a passage, a text or whatever, a book, what did it mean to them then and there? How does it apply to me here and now? And so that's our quest. Uh, and when we skip the then and there, which is the hard work, you know, that's exegetical research, then, and archaeology does come into play to help us understand some of those things, then we can get into all kinds of weird applications, you know, and uh, date setting and, and, you know, like you said, locuster applying to helicopters and all kinds of crazy things, which I grew up in that ethos and made made some life decisions based upon what <laughs> people who I trusted saying, you know, giving me a, a dispensational only view of, of eschatology and made some bad early decisions in my in my life and saw lots of other people do that. Ultimately, I came to think, you know, there's nothing wrong with the Bible, but there must be something wrong with my approach to it. Mm. And so I, I, my goal was to develop a consistent hermeneutic. And so those principles like then and there, here and now, Scripture interprets Scripture. Those are what led me to, I guess, my current view, which would be more of a, a preterist uh, approach, uh, fulfilled approach, post-millennial perhaps. We're just asking basic questions of the text, not only who wrote it, when did he write it, why did he write it, you know, what was the situation going on, but what did it mean to the original recipients? So when somebody, for example, read the Gospel of Matthew and they're looking at the Olivet Discourse, what did it mean to that person then and there when that person read at the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, all these things will take place in this generation. Then at the end of the Olivet Discourse, all these things will take place in this generation. Would it have possibly entered into that person's mind that he was talking about a future generation? And Jesus had already told, for example, the the disciples on one occasion and then Caiaphas and the, the Sanhedrin on another occasion that they would be alive when the Son of Man returned. Mm. Now, you know what I used to do as a dispensational reader of that, and people who believe that, this has nothing to do with who's a good Christian and who's not a good Christian, because I'm sure these people are far better Christians than I am. But it does have, I mean, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Um, what I used to do with that information is I would just glitch in my mind. I would just, I'd go on to the next passage because it simply did not fit. You will see the Son of Man return, he told them. Well, when, when we take principle number two, that Scripture interprets Scripture, then let's look at what the coming of the Lord and the return of the Lord means throughout Scripture. So God came in many times and in many ways, usually in judgment, and it was for the end of an age, not the end of the world. And that's the biggest thing that your listeners 
might take away from this is when the King James Bible translated Matthew 24, 1, what will be the signs of the end of the world that got into our, our mind in the Western world. Um, the word is eon, and all the new translations have it right. What will be the end of the age, not the end of the world? They were not asking him about the end of the world. They were asking him about the end of the age. So to apply those signs to the end of the cosmos instead of the end of the, the eon, that's that's a big, big problem. So th those are some, some of the things I hope people will think about and then go back with innocence of eye to those key texts. So there is an original context then, and, and these these things had an original meaning to people that were living 2,000 years ago. That makes sense to me. But also, it, it would seem to me that if you're interpreting the Bible correctly, and you're mm. seeing some of these connections, and you're seeing them in the right, this, the same frame of mind that the early church did, that you'd actually be in a better place to uh, see what the Bible is saying to yourself today. Yeah, I mean, the larger principles are that God vindicates the righteous, he punishes the wicked. I mean, those are important worldview types of issues. If, if I'm a Christian in the first century, and I think the book of Revelation was written pre-AD 70, and I re I'm reading the Apocalypse, and chapter 13 is telling me about the beast and the number of his name is 666, I know good and well, if I'm literate, that that equals Nero. I mean, everyone in the first century knew there was a numerical equivalent. Suetonius wrote about it in the 12 Caesars, that what the numerical equivalent of, of Nero's name. So I would have known who the beast was. That was Nero. Our problem, AJ, many times in Western evangelicalism uh, is that we have not done the hard work of studying and learning the the ancient culture and what it was what actually was going on then and there are there beasts that arise in our times i think there are and i think god will deal with them the same way that he dealt with nero he'll mm. cast them like a fire well it's almost encouraging isn't it to think that if this is the case and if these events are depicting things that were taking place in the first century and they had immediate meaning to uh to that audience it's actually encouraging for us today to know that like if, if you look at the trajectory of what christianity did and how it overcame the world of its day through through the blood of christ through the power of christ we can do the same there's there's examples of people making claims about the near return of jesus and it having a negative effect on the uh collateral effect on on the lives of their followers. But to me, that would be one good thing about really em embracing this understanding of the Bible, right? Well, that's right. And it's still happening in our day. Um, you know, five years ago or whatever, John Hagee wrote a big book called uh, the, On the Blood Moons. And I mean, it was a big, big deal. It's all that anybody was talking about is the blood moons. And I publicly said, this is ridiculous. You know, I guess <laughs> you reach a certain age where you just say what you actually think. Um, I said, it's not going, nothing's going to change. There's, this book is going to come and go. He's going to make millions of dollars and the world is going to go on. There is not, the end of the age is not coming. It has nothing to do with whether or not we have blood moons. Peter on the day of Pentecost, speaking of blood moons, because he's quoting Joel chapter two, and so he quotes it verbatim. And then he says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So the blood moons were fulfilled on the day of, of, of Pentecost. And so there you go. I was right. He was wrong. He did make millions of dollars uh, on the book. I'm not saying that he had a financial motive in, in writing it, but I'm just saying nobody ever apologizes when they do these things and say these things, and it's happening all the time. Yeah. There's a, I just recently heard that when there's a second moon, they call it a blue moon. I don't even know if that's true, but I wonder if there's blue moon in, uh, 
Yeah, some well, of the, some of the modern. There are a lot of revivals, probably more correct than there. There's a bad moon on the rise. I mean, that's, that's probably just as likely. For me, that was just very fulfilling, very enriching. Coming to see the Bible in its in its real context like that, it it actually gave me a courage and a strength, like I mentioned. And uh, uh, so I, I think you know for that reason, it's very important. But. When I've talked to people about this kind of stuff over the years, one of the common concerns is, and and this was even the case for me, because the first time I ever heard of preterism, which is the opposite of futurism, it's taking those passages and saying, no, what they refer to is something that's before. How would you answer the question of what's left to happen? Is there anything in the book of Revelation or in, in Jesus' discussions in Matthew 24 or in the Bible in general that's yet to happen, and how do we know? Because as Christians, we hang our hats on the resurrection of the dead in the last day yeah. and, and the final triumphant return of Jesus. I mean, this is one of the things that distinctly makes us Christian in name. Well, Could you I, shed any light from, on that for us? From my perspective, and here at my school, the Bible Seminary, we teach all the eschatological perspectives, and not all of our professors uh, share my view on this. It's not a thing where there's one view is right and the other is wrong. We want our students to, we require our students to thoroughly understand all of the perspectives because as Christian leaders, they're gonna need to. They're gonna need to interact with people who believe all, all kinds of different things. Why Why do I think, can you rephrase what your actual question was, AJ? Uh, yeah, just is there anything that we know that is, is still yet to happen? Because we, basically what we just did is we said the book of Revelation and Matthew 24, <coughs> they happened in the past. They were prophecies that Jesus gave uh, in both cases because Jesus gave the book of Revelation too. It was the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. So. He gave these prophecies of events that were soon to take place in his day. What, what's left for the future when you gotcha. start to look at the Bible in this light? I believe that Christ is returning. The Apostles' Creed, I confess the Apostles' Creed with all Christians across the ages, <clears throat> which part of which is the return of Christ. I, I, I long for that. I look for that. The difference is that I don't expect it to be in my lifetime. I expect that Christ will return at some point after we've done what he told us to do, which was to disciple the nations, and that he will be returning for a consummation, not a coronation. And I would point you to verses like, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26, tells us when the end will come. <laughs> May I quote it? Yeah, please do. And then the end will come, Paul wrote. <laughs> <laughs> after he has after he has destroyed all dominion and power and authority put them under his feet then the son himself will surrender the kingdom to the father and god will be all in all so you know a premillennialist believes that christ is coming tomorrow and that everything's are getting worse and worse until he returns my view is that things are not getting worse and worse uh that things are actually getting better better through the extension of the gospel and uh, that Christ will return. And he's in no hurry to return, by the way. Why do we want to see all these people who, who don't go to heaven? It seems like we would be very excited about extending the kingdom of God, not ending the world. <laughs> Absolutely and amen. And on that note, friends, I'm going to take just a quick moment here to tell you to subscribe because you can see this episode in its full context, in this interview with Dr. Scott Stripling about eschatology and the end times. And uh, you can do that at PastorAJ.com by becoming a subscriber for as little as $7 a month. So if you want to see this in its full context and finish the discussion about Dr. Scott's optimism and mm -hmm. about uh, this post-millennial understanding that things might actually be getting better, jump over there right now and subscribe. Love you. Dr. Scott, go ahead and continue. Tell us a little bit about your optimism 
I guess is the right word. Is that is that a more optimistic yeah. view? Why are you why are you optimistic? And I guess this is called the post millennial view. Explain that. Right. Well, I I believe that Christ empowers us to fulfill the Great Commission and that nothing can happen to me without God's permission. And if he allows it, then it's good for me even unto death. And life is not about me and my happiness. It's about God and his glory. And so that gives me a great boldness and a great confidence as I look at the future. And that's how I've, you know, reared my children. That's how I've discipled people within my sphere of influence is that there's nothing that's impossible for us. Um, and there's not some big bad antichrist or some some beast out there who's uh, even if there was, how would he possibly have have the power of, of Christ? Uh, this this dichotomy of belief systems is built on something called dualism, and so ancient Zoroastrianism, ancient dualism finds its way into this presuppositionalism that God and Satan are locked in in an eternal conflict with each other. I don't think they are. I think Satan has been defeated. Jesus said, behold, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He crushed his skull at Calvary. And yes, there is evil in the world. And yes, Satan, Satan exists. I'm not giving you some Pollyanna version, but I'm, I'm telling you that uh, in Christ, all things are possible for us. And then then we go forth to change the world one heart at a time. You mentioned when I heard you speaking on the topic, uh, one of the things you did was you actually went through history and you explained why you think things are better now than they were mm. in the time of Christ. Because I think to the modern audience who's been trained in classical dispensational futurism, you know, from the Bible, cobra helicopters are the locusts and so on, and the Antichrist is about to reveal himself through the European Union and the reborn Roman Empire. To the person that's been, been schooled in that, they're, they're thinking in a completely different context. So can you explain that for us? Yeah, I mean, we had a, at the end of the first century, about 1% of the world's population was Christian. Um, by the year 1492, about 2% of the world's population was Christian. So we got <laughs> off to a slow start, okay? <laughs> by, by the 20th century, it was 10% Christian. And today we're at about 33%, or one out of every three people professes to be a Christian. And you may say, well, they're not all Christians. Well, they weren't all Christians in the first century either when we had the 1%. So, you know, we're using relative numbers here. But you see this exponential growth, and people talk about how bad things are, how horrible they are. And I do know, like, COVID was no fun. I understand that. But that was not the bubonic plague, AJ. <laughs> right. I mean, we had yeah. one out of every three people <laughs> died during the, the bubonic plague, okay? So things, our, our lifespans are just skyrocketing. Our quality of life is skyrocketing. And maybe we don't even realize that these are the good old days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I guess perspective, right? It's all about perspective, and and too often we're probably just hearing the negative, and it's reinforcing some of those views that we have, and then we we just look at our Bible without any context, and that's I guess maybe how we how we get what we get. T to dive into like some nuts and some bolts for people who might want to understand. Okay, where is this in the Bible? If we're looking at the Book of Revelation, for example, let's say the majority of Revelation it's talking about a beast, which is the Roman Empire, the prophet which is probably ancient adulterous Israel that God is judging. There's reasons contextually for that. Is there a place in Revelation where if you're saying as a post-millennial guy, we're in the millennium, is there a place in Revelation where you look to to prove that out? And, and then also, where do we go from there? Like, what's what do we expect next in history and why? Well, uh, we all 
are basing our view on the millennium on one verse of scripture from Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And that's the only place in the Bible that mentions a thousand years. And we're trying to understand that, you know, with intellectual honesty and integrity. What did it mean to them then and there? How does that apply to me here and now? And it's in an apocalyptic book, which there's lots of challenges. I, another thing we have to have, AJ, is genre sensitivity and genre awareness, because I don't read the narratives, for example, the same way that I read poetry. Um, if I'm reading the epistles, I can draw doctrine straight from them. Paul tells Timothy, these things I have written to you that you will know how to conduct yourself in the church. Do this, do this, do this, do that. It's very straightforward. But when I'm reading stories, narratives, or parables, then I, I there's other steps that I have to take to, to draw doctrine out of that. Even harder when I'm then dealing with apocalyptic literature, because then yeah. I have to decide, you know, what is literal and what is figurative and, you know, it, at the very least, I've got to have some humility and add some nuance when I'm saying that I think it probably means this rather than I know that it definitely means that. Now, <laughs> that means that a premillennialist, an amillennialist, a postmillennialist, and a panmillennialist, and a, you know everything else in between, they're all going back to Revelation 20 verse 4 and saying, you know, here's what I think the millennium, you know, means and is. So in my view, what comes next is we continue to change the world through the extension of the gospel. For your North American listeners, please, America is not the kingdom of God. <laughs> and if, if you see, you know, wokeism and whatever negative things going on in our culture, that's so what? I mean, how about looking at Asia and Africa? We've got whole continents on fire with revival right now and transformations of governments taking place. And so don't use that very narrow uh, uh, paradigm. Now, I don't think God's finished with America either, but but I'm saying don't look at America and assume that that's what's going on in the kingdom of yeah, God. The Bible wasn't written about us, about America. <laughs> how about that? It, it's not all about me. Yeah. <laughs> I think one good proof for that, the millennium, you mentioned just how it's, it's a period of time we're trying to define when does it start the premillennialist says it's in the future again they're futurizing it so they're saying that it's it's yet to even start you made a statement early on in the discussion when you said you believe Jesus is coming for a consummation not a coronation the coronation is what happens when they designate somebody to be a king and and so the premillennialist is saying because the millennium is future Jesus is going to one day be king but that seems yeah. to go against what the bible teaches what the apostles believed about Jesus in their day, 2,000 years ago, that he already was reigning as king. Take the day of Pentecost. What does Peter say? He says in his Pentecost sermon that Jesus was seated on David's throne when he was raised from the dead. To the Davidic covenant of 1 Samuel chapter 7, God promises him that one of his heirs will sit on his throne and that he would be the Messiah. And Peter says on his resurrection, he's seated on David's throne. So from my perspective, we are in the kingdom age right now. Jesus is already king of kings and lord of lords. And isn't that what the book of Revelation says? Right, right. I, I think there's also a passage in Matthew where Jesus was being criticized for the Pharisees for casting out demons in the power of Beelzebub. But, he, <clears throat> but then he gives this analogy of the strong man. He says, no one can plunder the strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man. Jesus first binds the devil, or the devil is bound at the beginning of the millennium in chapter 
20, Revelation 20, well, Jesus says that he did the miracle that he did there in the first century by, quote, binding the strong man. And my, my understanding is it's the same word in the Greek. Maybe there was an original Hebrew manuscript of Matthew, but I think the concept is still the same. It, it seems like if we can put a beginning to the millennium, maybe it helps us to define it and yeah. and sort of okay. what comes How next, right? How about the day of Pentecost was the, the beginning of the millennium? <clears throat> okay. Because that's when Jesus is seated on David's throne. Does a thousand have to mean one thousand? If Scripture interprets Scripture, can I give you some examples of where a thousand doesn't mean a thousand? Yeah, in please the Bible? do. Yeah. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God shows His mercy to a thousand generations. So, what does that mean? He runs out of mercy at a certain point in history. Right. Right. No. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So then that then gives us permission to take that passage and to take 1,000 as not being literal because Scripture interprets Scripture. So we have to say that at least the possibility exists that that should not be read literally either. Right. And, and I guess, too, that explains the trajectory you're talking about, about this growth of the kingdom. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, he, he's going to reign until every enemy is under his feet. So he's, if he's reigning now— it's not a literal thousand years, but, you know, now it's been 2,000 years, so we don't know what that period is going to be. It's just a long period of time, um, which I guess stands in contrast to everything else in the book of Revelation where it says the time is near. That's the only place where there's this long period of time. It does say, though, at the end of Revelation, and I, I'd be interested to hear your take on this, that the devil will be unbound for a short time at the end of that millennium. We see things getting better, but potentially it seems like they're going to take a, a downturn for a minute at the end, right? That's Is, that's what it seems. I mean, the God's reasoning for that, I don't completely understand, but that does that does seem to be the plain reading of the text. Any other markers for the end times? How would we know when Jesus was about to return based on the scriptures? <laughs> well, I don't think we would. Isn't that the whole point? That we, <clears throat> we're not supposed to know. I got a text um, two or three weeks ago from a guy that I led to the Lord and discipled 35 years ago. He was in my youth group. Okay. Back in the and, you know, we lost track. Back then, we couldn't stay in touch with people like we do now. <clears throat> Hadn't talked to the guy in 35 years, and the the very first thing he says in the text is, hey, Scott, hope you're good. And then it gets into this long explanation of why Christ is returning in September, like <laughs> 60 days from now. And the, of course, it involves the U.N. and, you know, all, all this type of to stuff. Hadn't talked to the guy in 35 years. Right, of course, right. Yeah. Hello, how, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah. how, how's your wife and kids? Yeah. You know? <clears throat> of course, I'm the one who got him on that trajectory in the in the first place. So, um uh, it's out there, and it's controlling a lot of people's lives. And if we think that's the message that's going to set the world free, let's scare the hell out of them. I got a much better message than that. Yeah. Amen. Amen, my friend. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Scott Stripling, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Great getting to talk with you and just see your insights on lots of different things. If you haven't seen the other episode that I did with him on biblical evidence uh, from the world of archaeology in terms of uh, the excavations at Shiloh, the ancient biblical Shiloh, and the potential resting place of the ancient tabernacle, along with uh, the new Nabal curse tablet. Uh, check it out. And uh, Dr. Scott, tell people one more time how they can connect with you and they can see some of your writings and yeah. uh, maybe see some of your videos too. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks a lot. Um, my website is scottstripling.net. Uh, the school is thebibleseminary.edu. 
And our dig is digshiloh.org, and anybody can volunteer and come. I hope some of your uh, your viewers will do that, and people can search my name and connect with me out in, in social media. I'm not hard to find, so thanks for having me on. Awesome. God bless you. Let me uh, close this with a word of prayer and uh, uh, for you and your ministry and for our hearers. Lord God, we just thank you so much, and we're so grateful for who you are, and I just want to thank you for uh, Dr. Scott and his ministry that he does, Lord, through archaeology and teaching and, and other things today, Lord. We just want to pray that you would give him uh, continued success in his excavations and the, the way that he's trying to teach people and show people the truth of your word, Lord, because that's what it's all about, and that's where we find true freedom. So, God, we just want to pray for him and his family, and uh, we just want to pray for your kingdom, that your kingdom continues to grow, Lord, and people continue to come to know the name of Jesus, especially some mm. of these untouched parts of the world, Lord, where we don't see Christianity uh, as influential as it is uh, in the West. So God, we just, we thank you so much for who you are. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. And uh, folks, we'll see you next time. God bless y'all. Hey, there's one more thing I've got to share with you. I want you to know that you know Jesus and that you will one day be resurrected and spend an eternity with him. The Bible says that all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That all you need to do is confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So just say this prayer with me right now. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I need a savior. I believe that you died for my sins and that you were raised to life three days later. Make me born again in my heart through the power of your Holy Spirit and help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer, you are saved. Now go get yourself a Bible so that you can begin to develop godly habits in your life and make sure to join a Bible-believing local church where you can be baptized as an outward symbol of what God just did in your heart. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, send us a message and we'll get one to you. Welcome to the family, friend.